0: All right, let's uh, get the last leg of the party started. I'm not whistling, you know. What? I can't do it. I can't do this, man. I've tried. I cannot whistle through. Anyway, so good morning again. My name's Katie, and I am a compulsive overreader. I love that. That's the best thing about being in this program is you can get like a bunch of people to say hi to you, and it feels so good. <sighs> okay, before we begin, um, uh, once again, please make sure your cell phones are turned off or put on vibrate. Thank you. And to start out, I've asked Richard to please come up and uh, read today's inspiration from O.A.'s For Today book.
1: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Richard, compulsive over Hi, Richard. Uh, July 6th. If you're, re- if you're reluctant to ask the way, you will be lost from a m- Malay proverb. If I knew what to do to arrest my illness, I wouldn't be here. Recovery requires a change of ways, a willingness to go to any length. I need to ask directions. How do I stay abstinent? How do I avoid becoming obsessed with diet and weight loss? I have to ask questions, even when I think I know the answers, or perhaps especially when I think I know the answers. Step by step. I will find my way, asking for help, using telephone numbers, getting a sponsor, listening, and sharing at meetings. I will do what is necessary to be restored to sanity. For today, may I continue to discard more of the pride and arrogance I put aside when I came to OA and asked for help.
0: Thank you so much, Richard. All right, just a couple quick reminders that um, we are still selling tickets for 50-50 drawing and the Afghan. Um, You can look in the back. The lovely Joanne is uh, still selling the tickets. We'll keep selling those until the end of the last speaker, and then we'll have the drawing for both the Afghan and the 50-50 after after the last speaker. And if you don't know what a 50-50 is, pretty much um, if your name is drawn, you get half of the pot. And the other half goes to Region 2. So it's a very cool, fun fundraiser. Everybody wins. Um, (laughs) And and again, if you uh, won something in the silent auction, make sure you see Sophia so you can pay for it and get your cool stuff. And I think she is right over there. She's waving. Sweet. (laughs) We'll remind you again, too. All right. So um, now I want to bring up Nancy from our program committee who's going to introduce our first speaker.
2: absolutely delighted to uh, be here with you at the last session and our uh, closing ceremonies and thank everybody who did service this uh, weekend and really appreciate it. I want to thank all the I want to especially thank all the speakers who stepped up you know this was a, a, a very uh, Enjoyable time to be speaking to all of you, asking you for your help, and you just stepping up. The speakers, moderators, and timers are what the uh, the program committee was responsible for. And uh, now we're going to have our very wonderful last speaker, and this is going to be Nancy.
3: Sorry, I just took a swig of coffee and got a mouthful of grounds. (laughs) Uh, My name is Nancy. I'm a compulsive overeater. I um, first off wanted to start by welcoming the newcomers. I know this is a OA convention is a great way to kickstart your recovery. And I know how much courage it took for you to show up here today. And I'm really glad that you came. Secondly, I wanted to say that what I'm sharing here today is my experience, strength, and hope. It's just my story. I don't speak for OA. Um, nobody has, like, vetted my speech here today. So I'm um, just going to do my best to show up and be of service. I thirdly wanted to thank Nancy for um, asking me to speak and the committee. And um, say I was getting really nervous up here um, during the you know, month leading up to this, thinking this is kind of like the big leagues, you know, speaking at the closing ceremony of the Region 2 convention, and do I have the chops, you know, to kind of be up here, and my, uh, my sponsor kind of had me take it down a notch and just reminded me that I'm here to be of service. I need to show up, tell the truth, trust God. That is a mantra that has gotten me through many difficult times. So the theme for this weekend is we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness, the second promise in page 83 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have indeed found a new freedom and a new happiness in OA through my um, program of recovery, not just with food, but what I've been delighted to find is that over and over and over again, the promises keep coming true on a new and deeper level or in pockets of my life where I had thought um, that you know, would never see the promises. It's come true. And re- things have really changed for me. I notice that I'll go through kind of a period of time where I'll hit sort of a program plateau and I feel like I'm just treading water or maybe backsliding a little. And I'll go through some period of pain or some growth spurt or something will open up in my life and, uh, you know, a new transformation will happen, usually through, through working the, the steps. So my focus today is going to be on transformation, rebirth, and renaissance. Sound like fun? Okay. So my sort of stats to get those out of the way, I went to my first OA meeting when I was 14 years old. I got abstinent from sugar at age 19 after going to a 12-step-based food rehab. So I've been abstinent from sugar for, I just celebrated, 21 years. Uh, my top weight was 230 pounds. My bottom weight was somewhere in the 130s. And, uh, you know, I've been everywhere in between both, you know, also some of those in program, but, um, but have maintained at least 60 pounds of that weight loss. Um, I come by this disease honestly. I have alcoholics and overeaters on both sides of my family. <clears throat> so just to tell a little bit about what it was like, I did a lot of binging on sugar. I remember once I'd had a really tough day in high school, and I went to the grocery store down the street, bought a tub of frosting and a spoon, and sat in my car eating the frosting as quickly as I could. And the thought actually crossed my mind, if there was a way to mainline this, it would be so much quicker and I really got uh, very early on that I was a junkie with food with sugar specifically that sugar for me was like heroin for a heroin addict. Um, I did a lot of secret eating, the kind of thing where, for example, I remember making a coffee cake for my parents, you know being a, being a good daughter, I made a coffee cake and they woke up way before them. They were still sleeping. I would eat a slice, and then another slice, and then another slice, and then three-quarters of it was gone, and then I was stuck because what was I to do? You know, Should I throw it out and cover up all traces of me having cooked something? Should I m- make a new one and throw out the rest? Should I hide it and save it for later? You know, Just that sort of shame that went along with that secret eating. My attempts at harm reduction, I remember once uh, I bought a box of mini donuts and I was driving down the car binging and I would throw every third donut out the window (laughs) because I knew that I wouldn't be able to stop before I reached the bottom. That was like the best I could do, you know, was to have a third less in intake. (laughs) And then um, I went off to college, which is sort of where I hit my bottom with food And at the time, The Little Mermaid was popular, and there was this one scene where Ariel the mermaid is watching all the people on land dancing and having fun, and she just feels really, like, isolated and alienated, and that's kind of how I felt in college. You know, she sings this song, like, I want to be part of your world. Um, And I felt a lot like that in the early years of college, where there was just this barrier between me and... And other people, and enjoying life as a young person. <clears throat> uh, I started drinking and experimenting with drugs in college, largely because it was the only time I felt I could get out of my body. You know, I sort of felt like I was a prisoner in my own body. And when I was drunk or under the influence, I was like a little balloon, kind of floating above my body, and it felt really freeing. So I was starting to get more involved in that um, when I when I got when I wound up checking myself into this um, 12-step-based recovery treatment center. And then, of course, the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization of college dining halls. I would go in thinking, you know, with my tray, this time I'm just going to get a meal, you know, a protein, a carbohydrate, and a vegetable. And before I would be even through the line, I would have, you know... Brownies stuffed under the the corner of the plate and be eating them on the sly while I was getting my food. I'd go back up for seconds and thirds. And I just felt really out of control. I remember thinking, gosh, if I, um, the only way I'm going to be able to stop eating the way I'm eating is to be locked up. Like I wanted to, I had fantasies about being thrown in jail and having somebody like pass me three square meals under the door. I felt like that was the only way I could stop. So what happened? Um, I was already familiar with the 12 Steps because I went to my first Allatine meeting at age 10. My uh, mother had gotten sober a few years before that. And just through talking with her and keeping both our ears open, we started to realize that the way I felt about food and sugar was similar to the way she felt about alcohol. And she heard about OA and brought me to my first meeting at age 14, and I was home, never to leave again. <laughs> Hopefully, Knockwood. Uh, age fourteen to nineteen, I was kind of in and out of the program. <clears throat> it was, you know, I was definitely by far the youngest person in the rooms, and that gave me a lot of opportunities to identify out, and a lot of, you know, not yet had had not happened to me. So, but then when I went to early college, I really hit bottom. Uh, went up, checking myself into twelve-step based rehab, and got abstinent from sugar there. And I could probably talk for an hour about my experiences in <clears throat> treatment and early recovery, but they haven't—they haven't given me six hours to talk. So, <laughs> um, just to hit some highlights from early recovery, in case there's anybody here who's in like their first year or two, I remember getting the first event that I went to having gotten out of this this rehab was my best friend from high school's wedding and I sat down at the table and there was chocolate on the plate. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I just got out of rehab six hours ago. You know, this is insane. Why am I even here? And I freaked out and I left and I went home, had an abstinent meal, and then actually I felt like I wanted to go back. And I went back, and I had the best night that night, dancing with my friends. It was the first event I'd been to where I really felt connected with people, where I wasn't focused on food or how did I look. I just had a fantastic time. I had other sort of less high points in college where there'd be a, a barbecue or a party or something. You know, it was college. And I would just have to leave, like, halfway through. And I remember feeling at times like a huge freak or loser. I mean, what kind of person can't handle a barbecue? Like, how lame is that? But what I did learn from that is that I'm a person who's willing to go to any lengths. And that's something that's really um, valuable to learn about oneself. I also lost 100 pounds in less than a year, which was definitely too fast. I started getting attention from men that I'd never had to deal with before. And, you know, there were the girls in high school who'd kind of mastered the hair toss and the, like, withering glance, like, in your dreams, buddy. And I didn't have any of that. I was, like... You know, just I felt really vulnerable and raw and exposed. And I was like, this is not what I signed up for in losing weight. I thought it was going to be fun. I thought the attention was going to be fun. And this is not really not fun. And I remember thinking, ah, this is why people relapse. Like, this is really uncomfortable. And it was just through, um, really through the grace of God. I mean, I was not working, you know, a wonder program at the time. So I really feel like it was through the grace of God that I did not relapse at that time. So, fast forward through um, the next nineteen years or something, uh, a lot of life happened. I just celebrated, so that was when I was nineteen, and I just turned forty in October and celebrated my twenty-one years. So, a lot of life happened in between. Then, I got married to my college boyfriend, who was the one who'd seen me balloon up to two hundred and thirty pounds. Bless him, and also then dropped down to one hundred and thirty pounds. Um, I had two kids, five and eight, and went through two pregnancies in recovery, which ha- was quite a trip. I tell you, if anybody else has gone through pregnancies in recovery, I had cravings the likes of which I hadn't seen since since early. Re- I mean, since um, really, since I was really in the food. Just really intense cravings, which were hard, really hard, and food was a struggle at times. But I also had this new body awareness that was really exciting and transformative. So I remember thinking at one point um, that I shouldn't drink caffeine because I really wanted my body to be like a nice home for this this baby to live in for nine months. You know, really nurturing and healthy home. And then my next thought was, well, hell, I have to live in this body for, like, the last, you know, whatever, the last 35 years. Like, I want it to be a nice place for me to live, you know? (laughs) And then um, I went through seven years of graduate training, um, which put more challenges. You know, I had a schedule where I was occasionally up for 36 hours at a time. And, I mean, how do you, like, plan food to be up for 36 hours, Uh, I had very little time to go to meetings, to do step work. And there were many years in there where all I could really do was hang on to my bottom line abstinence, which was kind of like no hardcore sugar, and keep coming back. No matter what, I went to sort of like a minimum number of meetings per week or per month, and I always, always, always kept my foot in the door. So I guess if I have one message, it's like don't ever leave. you You can be spinning out in outer space, but if you have a tether holding you to the program, like one foot in the door, or even a toe in the door, then there's a chance. You know, there's a chance to kind of come back. There were times where I had <clears throat> was not working the steps, periods of times where I had no sponsor, I would gain weight, I'd be slipping and sliding with food, but again, I always kept coming back and Kept away from sugar because I really had gotten it that that for me sugar was like heroin and a relapse could like I could there could be no coming back and I'm really grateful for that realization that I kind of got that on a very deep core level because um, you know they talk about being placed in a position of neutrality with respect to food and I definitely feel like with um, with sugar, that's definitely happened for me. It's a, definitely a freedom and a happiness. I can now, um, like my daughter's birth, you know, I can frost a birthday cake without licking my fingers. It, like, doesn't, it's not a food product to me. Of course, it's not actually a food product to any human beings, but, um, <laughs> but it's definitely not for me. <laughs> So in terms of um, what I wanted to kind of focus on today was about the new freedom and a new happiness and the things that have brought me that freedom and happiness. And that has been working the steps around particular areas. I actually didn't find sort of working the steps to be that helpful in a gestalt. It's been more... I've had more growth when I've focused on a certain area. Like, I'm working the steps around my job. I'm working the steps around my marriage. Because I'm able to, like, go deeper and kind of stay focused and be less, like, I don't know, out in the clouds, be able to be more concrete, which is helpful for me. So the first thing, you know, after I finish finishing this intense graduate training and popping out two kids, I realized, oh, now, now I have some more me time. I have a little bit more time for myself. And there were a lot of unresolved issues weighing me down, literally and figuratively. And I got a new sponsor somewhere in there. And her sort of gestalt of me was, you're like kind of chaos. You know, She just kind of got this chaos vibe from me. And I'm like, of course, I'm a working mother of two. Of course I'm chaotic. Like, what working mother of two isn't chaotic? That's ridiculous. It's like an unnecessary comment. <laughs> and, uh, But I realized through talking with her and through just being honest and thinking about my life that I created a lot of my own chaos. For example, I'm always late everywhere I go. I would have no quarters for the parking meter in my car and no cash in my wallet. So I would show up somewhere late I would have to go to the ATM to get cash and then go to the corner store to break a 20 so I could get some change to put in the meter all the time praying that in those 10 minutes that it took me to do that, that my friend who I was late for was not going to be pissed off and that I wasn't going to get any parking tickets. So, I mean, that's completely, completely chaos of my own making. I realized I was powerless and unmanageable. I was powerless over that chaos and the urge to create it. Where, where it came from, I don't know. And that my life was unmanageable. And what's more, that I really did not like that. I did a lot of uh, step work. And you guys can see while, while I talk if you can hear, like, oh, oh that's step six. Oh, that's step seven. Um, I did some writing and talking with my sponsor. So, why was I drawn to chaos? What is it doing for me? Why is it so hard to let it go? What what values do I attribute to chaos? Like, like, why is it such a good thing in my mind? Oh, it's... I'm not chaotic. I'm laid back. You know, I'm, I'm easygoing. I'm bohemian, even. <laughs> and... Uh, which, of course, was totally not true. I'm not really any of those things. But... Um, and the opposite of that was, like, neurotic. Orderly, you know. And control freak. Martha Stewart. You know, I didn't, like, want do I want to be like that? No. And my sponsor really challenged me on those values. What if what if the opposite of chaos isn't neuroticism? What if it's what if it's harmony? Hmm, that sounds pretty nice. I'd like to live a harmonious life. So I started thinking about it more in those terms. Uh, what is this chaos costing me? What character defects are being activated? Do I think that my time is more important than your time because I'm late and making you wait? Well, yeah, kinda. Uh, and then, and then, what concrete steps am, would I take to get there? You know, well, maybe I'd have to have a roll of quarters in my car. Maybe I'd have to every Sunday night put like gas in the tank and go to take some money out of the ATM. So I would have cash like to put in the basket when they pass it around. I would always have to put in like nothing or $10 to make up for all the times that I hadn't put money in. Um, and, uh, and then I had to ask my higher power for the ability and willingness to work towards a harmonious life. I would email my sponsor my 10th step at the end of most days with good glitches and gratitude. So what were the good things that I had done? And particularly honing in on the, um, you know, these things, did I have quarters in my car? Did I have, you know, just as as examples? Like, what were the concrete things that I was actually doing to make those changes? And then um, gratitude, I would have a gratitude list too there. But, um, and what was amazing to me is that the chaos really lifted. Um, I do definitely backslide. For example, um, preparing for this talk like two days before I was about to give it. I This morning I was like, oh my God, I'm creating all this chaos for myself and stress unnecessarily because I could have done this last weekend and then had a week to kind of percolate and refine instead of ah, panicking this morning. I mean, two days ago. So... But generally, the, my life, my environment, my personality is no longer swirling in chaos. I, I feel like it's really been lifted and have had sort of a spiritual awakening around that chaos. So the only thing was that in my work life, had really not experienced much of a reprieve from chaos. I still was having a lot of problems at work. A lot of stubborn character defects that were showing up at work, perfectionism, procrastination, people-pleasing. They all begin with P. I seem, feel like all character defects begin with P. Uh, playing a martyr, playing a hero, rescuer, difficulty setting boundaries. And in the particular job that I had, they really flourished. It was like pouring fertilizer on my character defects, and I was I got to be miserable. But unlike with the chaos in the other areas, I mean the you know bringing quarters in the car, like it was pretty clear what needed to be done. Um, it was very unclear to me around work. the The path to freedom had been well lighted. Uh, clearly marked for the the chaos in other areas of my life but in work it was the path was dark the destination was unclear i was pretty clear that i was miserable where i was but i didn't know where i was going you know it was like heading into some dark woods with no clarity so i really had to turn to my higher power and just say like you know god i don't know what you have in store for me but i'm just willing to take one step down this path at a time I do feel like my higher power had led me to that line of work and to that particular job, but clearly it was no longer working, and I wasn't sure, was it the way I was doing the job, you know, with all my character defects activated? Was it the job description itself? Like, should I switch lines of work? Was it the agency involved, you know, and the the poor management that was the problem? But I never really got to find out because there was sort of this, like, crisis at work that precipitated me Leaving and getting a different job, so there were a lot of a lot more questions than answers. Between jobs was sort of this like golden opportunity. I was coming up on my fortieth birthday. I had a little um, savings in the bank. I t- decided to take three months off between jobs to rediscover myself, and I you know I called it my sabbatical and my renaissance. And I started to wonder, you know, approaching forty and being twenty years in in recovery, what if the story that I've told about myself, what if the, the self that I thought I knew, I mean, I feel like my thirties was sort of about, oh yeah, I kind of know myself. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. Yeah. This is who I am. You know, was sort of my, in my thirties. And I thought, what if, what if my forties are going to be about, what if that's not who I am? What if I'm somebody else entirely? What if there's, what if there's things inside that, that are just dying to come out. You know, what if I've always been a kind of a couch potato? What if there is an athlete in me who wants to come out? What if there is an artist? You know, these are all things that I hadn't paid much attention to. So I re-examined some of these messages that I gave myself. I am not artistic. I am not an athlete. In my next life, I'll be an athlete. That's what I would. That's what I would say. Um, So I found this like couch to 5k program. And and I thought of like, what is the one thing I will never do? I will never run. Like I hate to sweat. I hate to be uncomfortable in my body. So what's the one thing that makes you do both? Well, running is definitely, that sounds like the most awful thing I can imagine doing. So I got this couch to 5k app. It's not it's not only an app, but um, it's just a program. The idea is that you go from being a couch potato to running a 5K one step at a time. And I thought, hmm, I've done one step at a time before. I think maybe I could do that. And the first day was like, you know, run for 30 seconds, walk for a minute. Run for 30 seconds, walk for a minute. And it was really hard, but, like, I did it. It was, like, not that bad. And I, you know, just over the next weeks, you know, I kind of... You're supposed to do it in, like, eight weeks or whatever, but I did it, like, in, like, six months or something. But, um, you know, I did it at my own pace, a pace that felt like it was kind of driven by my higher power. And I really... I sort of realized that my drive to stop exercising when I started sweating or when I got uncomfortable was very similar to the drive to stuff food in my mouth when I was feeling a feeling. It was sort of like this inability to just be in discomfort and wanting that to go away. And so I, I started trying to think of this exercise development or transformation as being kind of like a spiritual journey. And so I would... I, you know, at least in the early part of this, I would sort of run without headphones on, and I would, like, talk to my higher power, and had, like, this little, when it would get hard, I'd be like, my body is strong, my body is healthy, my body is amazing, my body is strong, my body is healthy, my body is amazing. And that really kind of gave me the strength to push through, and um, last Thanksgiving, I ran my first 5K, which is very exciting. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to become a marathon runner or anything like that, but you never know. That, that's, the th- that's one of the things I've learned, is you never know. Another thing I started doing is yoga. I, am, I grew up on the East Coast, and I, when I moved to California, I would totally make fun of people who did yoga, because it seemed like such like a trendy California thing to do. But I realized that actually yoga isn't trendy at all. It's an ancient spiritual practice. And if it is becoming trendy, it's because it's really awesome. Uh, it seemed like a good find for me being more of a type A person. I always had this resistance towards sitting meditation, and I felt like something about you know holding postures where um, I was able to focus on my breathing and focus on my body, but not um, i don 't know so something about it fit better with my um, just with my personality and so I would encourage you know people who have it like if you feel like you kind of don't get the meditation thing, that there's there's lots of different ways to meditate, you know, walking meditation, sitting meditation, yoga, um, you know, lots of things that people do, washing dishes. And around the same time, I started doing a step study uh, group and having some new thoughts around um, God, body, food. And um, I just want to say that, like, Some of these uh, statements are probably potentially a little threatening to some people, so I'm just going to say this is my experience. I'm very practical in this program, and if what you're doing, weighing and measuring, three meals, whatever it is that you're doing, gray sheet is working, don't reinvent the wheel, just keep doing it. That's awesome. But my approach was definitely not working for me. I was doing this for years. I'd been kind of doing this yo-yo thing where I'd been bouncing back and forth between the my what I would call my squeaky clean abstinence where I'd be weighing and measuring and everything would be sort of perfect and then my sloppy, I'm struggling abstinence. And it was all above my bottom line, so I could be like, yeah, I'm abstinent. But it was really you know, there were definitely days where I would not have wanted to advertise what I was eating in an OA meeting. You know, and other days where you could have come home and watched me spoon every morsel into my mouth. So, But one of the things that I would realize, and my weight had also gone up and down through that time, and I was still using food um, to kind of take the edge off to some extent. You know, it wasn't Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, but it was, you know, eating out or uh, eating all the food on my plate when I really didn't need it all. So I realized a couple things. One, um, I don't let God into my food decisions. Two, I have this idea that weighing and measuring equals God's will. If it's weighed and measured, it must be God's will. I've surrendered it by writing it down and weighing it, right? Again, uh, this is just for me. Could weighing and measuring or the way that I was using or actually abusing weighing and measuring be stunting my spiritual growth? Could it be locking me into more food than I need? I would do things like I'd have dinner you know, at 7 or something because I'd been late getting home from work. And then two hours later, I'd have my evening snack because, like, I was owed my snack because I'd written it down. Even though I was completely not hungry, I was already, you know, full from dinner. Could it be allowing me to check out? Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching TV while eating if it's weighed and measured because it's already, it's like God's meal, you know, so I can space out while I'm eating it. I don't have to be mindful and as it, was it setting up this sort of yo-yo, like having this perfect thing and then imperfect thing that I was bouncing back and forth between, and maybe that that in and of itself was not healthy for me. I also was of the school of thought that the food decision maker in me is broken. A part of my brain that I was born with, or maybe never born with, that is broken and will never be fixed, and that's why I need a way to measure food plan. But I started to wonder, what if the decision maker could be healed, or at least partly healed? What if I could have a right-sized relationship with my body and with food? Hmm, that's an idea. And um, so abstinence in OA is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. Uh, and that's, that's, I didn't make that up. That's actually from the, the website. Um But I'd always, I had gotten, and I noticed this happens a lot in meetings and has happened a lot for me, getting confused between abstinence and food plan. Uh, I'd always had this bottom line, like no hardcore sugar, and then the top of the line, squeaky, clean, weighed and measured food plan. But what if the real pinnacle of abstinence is higher power directed right-sized meals? And what if my food plan and weighing and measuring were tools to help support me to have true sobriety around food? I know some of you are probably thinking, well, duh, yeah, the food plan is a tool to support abstinence. It's, like, all over the literature, like, everywhere. And, uh, but I never really got that, you know, that, 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 that the food plan was a support for abstinence and that they weren't the same thing. So what would it be like to move away from the sort of I'm owed this food or what can I get away with and still look my fellow OAs in the eye? Uh, instead to move towards a, what is a right-sized meal for me today? Um, I also started to explore hunger and fullness. I wondered, what if hunger was a bodily sensation that supplied me with information rather than it being a mandate or a sign of impending doom? (laughs) Which is what it had always seemed to me. My husband... um, who is completely disinterested in food, almost like to an alarming degree sometimes, uh, I asked him, what is it like for you when you experience hunger? What does that experience like for you and he said well it 's kind of like having to pee. you know you have this like building sensation, and then if you ignore it long enough, it goes away, and then it builds again and then it goes away and then it builds again, and at some point, you kind of can 't ignore it anymore, and you have to take some action. I was like, "Wow, that is not how I experience hunger. <laughs> I experience hunger as like Oh, my God, I'm going to die if I don't eat in five minutes. So I started, ex- uh, you know, just experimenting with, like, what is it like to have the first glimmers of hunger? And then if I kind of sit with that for a minute, does it go away? Does it get stronger? Like, what you know, just kind of trying to be mindful of my body and the signals it was trying to send me that I'd been completely ignoring for for all those years of my recovery. And um, fullness also, you know, what is what does it mean to be satiated satisfied versus full versus overly full and uncomfortable and wow I wish I hadn't eaten that much so with all you know with all that and I really I have to say you know I did have I was blessed to have these 3 months off where I could be kind of exploring some of these things without having all the demands of the normal 9 to 5 but I was really able to turn food and exercise over to my higher power um I 15 to 20 pounds that I'd kind of been struggling with in program for, you know, a decade had kind of melted off much to my shock. Actually, I actually started mentioning to some people, like, do you think I could have something, there could be something horribly wrong, like a thyroid problem or, you know, something wrong with me because I'm, like, losing weight and I feel like I'm not even trying. And my husband's like, you're exercising three times a week and you're eating less. Duh, you know. <laughs> okay I guess I'm not horribly ill um, so uh, what I wound up with was a new freedom and a new happiness around food weight body and um, you know the my sort of my shorthand version of that um, the way abstinence defined in a Abstinence in OA is the action of refraining from compulsive eating, compulsive food behaviors, while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. Well, that sounds a lot like right-sized eating to get you a right-sized body. You know, like a right-sized eating, right-sized meal plan, right-sized body. It's all about being right-sized, you know, which is, is talked a lot about in especially Step 7 with humility and being right-sized and how, you know, eventually... When we're in the program long enough, we start to look for humility for its own sake because we realize it will bring us freedom and happiness instead of um, um, being brought to that through pain and suffering so anyhow, I guess um, I was going to say that i with my okay with my right sized body and my right-sized food plan. I was sort of ready to turn my attention back to work. I had been uh, in this new job where I had uh, a similar job, new population, new bosses, new agency that I was working for. But I brought myself with me. I brought all my character defects with me. And, you know, it's it's a similar enough job that uh, a lot of the same things were rearing their ugly heads. So the... So I started working the steps again, I mean, this is sort of more recent stuff, and I, so I don't really have it um, as well thought out. But I started working the steps around work again. And the theme for me with of 2014, I think, is living life on life's terms. I realized I spent a lot of my life running from what is, you know, with food, alcohol, escapist TV, novels, internet, sort of going to another reality and then that would get me in trouble with my current reality. Right. Cause if I, you know, if I have X amount of work to do and I spend half of the time like watching TV or something, then I dig myself in this deeper and deeper hole and have more and more anxiety that I need to escape from more and more. So I'm sure you guys know what that's like. Um, and I want to be happy, joyous, and free in, in the life I have now, you know, in this job, with these kids and this husband and with, you know, everything that goes with it. So life on life's terms with my job, um, what does that look like? Um, I have, um, shoot, sorry, I'm drawing a little blank here. I've reached the end of what I had prepared to say. So um, my job is can be very challenging. And I had this story that I'd told myself, like, oh, my job is so hard. It's so overwhelming. I'm so stressed out. If you had my job, you would be stressed out too. No wonder I'm you know, miserable. Uh, and so it was sort of, again, like the story that I'd told about myself. And I started, it's starting to shift. Like, what if... I mean, you know, there's lots of people through the centuries who've had, hor- like, actually horrible lives instead of imagined horrible lives. Um, you know, people living in the Holocaust, people, um, you know, who are working three jobs and never get to see their kids, you know, people in, in the Salerno beachhead, you know, like they talk about in the big book. And if, if those... People can be uh, capable of strength, valor, and even joy. Then, what's to stop me? You know, it must be an attitude thing. It must be a a self-concept or something. And so, I started to think about like, what if, what if my story could shift? What if instead of stressed and overwhelming, a a stressful and overwhelming job, what if I had a, a busy and challenging job? And so I've been trying to reframe the way I talk about my work by saying, um, by A, not complaining about it as much, and B, by saying, um, you know, when people ask how work's going, oh, you know, it's busy and challenging. Because it is. It is both of those things. And reframing it has been very helpful to me. Um, And trying to focus on living, like, accepting life on life's terms. Like, I signed up for this job. You know, I, I, signed, I signed on the piece of paper that said I was going to do this work. They're paying me, and they're paying, you know, I'm getting a decent salary. And so, you know, why not just shut up and do the work, right? Like, it's part of, it's part of what my, um, my sponsor's been encouraging me to do. <laughs> um and so, so that's been really helpful, you know, and to think about like well how could I how could I make this more joyful in an, an experience so it's not drudgery, you know. Well maybe if I when I'm on my, I put my kids to bed and then get on my laptop. What if instead of being like, I can't believe I have to work on my laptop. What about me? What about my life? And I'm not hanging out with my husband and I'm not, you know, instead of being in that space, what if I like put on some jazz, make myself a cup of tea, you know, put my feet up, sit in the rocker and, um, think about, wow, this, this particular case is really interesting. Let me do a little research on that and learn something about this. Or or wow, you know, I, I was just really helpful to that person and now they can sleep easy knowing that I emailed them back. You know, and sort of focusing on the, the joyful parts and also trying to leave work at work. So when I come home, you know, I've got the a five year old and an eight year old and they don't they don't care about what kind of day mommy had. You know, they don't they barely even know that like I'm a separate human being. Um <laughs> So, you know, focusing on them and focusing on just being present with my family has been really helpful. Learning to ask for help, you know, I do have wonderful um, people in my life who are there to be helpful and, I mean, not that they exist to be helpful to me, but um, that, who offer their help to me and um, being able to ask for the help that I need has been another journey of recovery in this program. Um, So that's kind of what I am working on now, these days. Life on life's terms and living in the joy. So every morning I write my food down, or I try to write my food down every morning. And I I say, um, I write down, God, help me to stay in my clean, abstinent, chaos-free, on-time day. I turn my work life over to you, releasing stress and anxiety, panic and despair, procrastination and perfectionism, um, help me to accept life on life's terms and to live in the joy. And that um, that's how I try to set up my day going forward. Um, the panic and despair thing was actually kind of interesting. I would notice, I'd be at work, I'd look at my inbox, my like electronic inbox, and it would be so huge. And I would just be full of panic and despair and immediately break down in tears. And, you know... I mean my like I learned in this program as part of my you know recovery that I should feel my feelings, and so here I am, you know, I'm having this panic and despairing feelings. well, isn't it recovery to like feel those feelings and not and just be in my panic and despair and my my sponsor kind of challenged me to be like, well, that's kind of like emotionalism more than a feeling, you know like. Is that serving you? Is it, is it serving you to sit at your computer and cry? Like, how is that you know, helping you to accomplish your work? Is that really lessening your anxiety or is it increasing your anxiety? And sort of thinking through this, this whole panic and despair bit. And so I started to think of panic and despair as being like a, um, a character defect, as opposed to a feeling, um, as something that would like, you know, like a craving for food something that would kind of inhabit me or bubble up from within or something, but that, and that I could be like, oh, wow, hi, panic and despair. Um, you're here again, but I don't need you because you're not really that helpful, so adios. And, you know, it didn't always work, but definitely um, being able to say, higher power, this is not helpful, you know, please take this panic and despair feeling away really allowed me to focus on my work and be much more productive and then have more time for myself. So I uh, have found um, that that's an area and that has also kind of feels like it's magically been removed. And I don't feel like I definitely have anxiety around work these days, but the sort of panic and despair, the sort of like, you know, gnashing my teeth, pulling out my hair kind of feelings uh, have kind of been lifted. Um, And I think that's by working the steps and turning it over to a higher power. So I um, guess I would like to wrap up by saying that um, in 2014... I'm going to try to work on accepting life on life's terms, continuing to work the steps around work and cultivating a deeper relationship with the higher power of my understanding, and by continuing to show up as I trudge and skip the road of happy destiny. Thanks.
0: Nancy, thank you so much for showing up and sharing your story with us. Appreciate it much. So, slight change of plans. Turns out our second speaker couldn't make it today, so we're going to rearrange the things a little bit. Um, I did say that the 50-50 drawing would be closing after the la- the first speaker, which indeed is going to happen. So if, if you last chance to buy tickets, we got some nice people wandering around in the back. they got some tickets. We'll give you a few more. We're going to do a few things. while You can buy those, and they're going to count the money, and we'll do the drawing in a few minutes. So while that's going on, I want, if you love this convention, like we do it every year. So, um, and, and we alternate Northern and Southern California. And, and next year it's going to be in San Diego. And that's all I'm going to say about it because we got some people from down there who want to tell you all about it. So come on up. Yay. Woo.
2: Good morning. 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 Wow. I'm Barbara, I'm a compulsive overeater. And I I first want to thank the twenty fourteen convention committee. This has been so awesome. Okay. And I hope that you all will join us in San Diego next year. Okay. You have little bookmarks that were placed on your chairs. Please take them. If there's one on the chair next to you that nobody picked up, please pick it up and take it back to your home group. Um, We have a great venue, uh, which is the Town and Country Hotel. It's beautiful. Uh, And, of course, San Diego itself is beautiful. Um, And we have a great committee. We're just going to have so much fun. Uh, I love conventions. They're sort of a up experience for me, so I hope you will all come down and join us. Our theme is I Put My Hand in Yours, and we came up with, related to that, um, a skit, so we're going to hit it right about now. Uh, if I can come up with the music. Okay, come on back. So please say to me, let me be your guide, and please say to me. You let me hold your hand You let me hold your hand I want to hold your hand Oh please say to me You let me be your guide And I say to me I would like to hold your hand I want to hold your hand I wanna hold your hand. When you touch me, I'm really happy inside. It's such a feeling that you're loved. you can't act. Coming back, coming back, and I would have something. I will lose hands and write scissors suddenly. You let your hand, I wanna hold your hand. I wanna hold your hand. Hey.
0: Sign me up, man. I'm there. All right. So if you can't wait for, like, San Diego to have some more awesome fun with, like, people in OA, we get the birthday party next January. And Pam, you want to say something about that? Get people, get. you don't have to wait. You can, like, do something in the middle. Come on up.